break 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 you are now listening to breakthrough news it's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 2nd of June, 2021. Very happy to be back here with you on the show. And we've got plenty for you here, as we always do. We're going to talk about Iran's presidential election in full swing. We're going to talk about the big impact of stimulus checks on the population here in the United States. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we want to start with CEO pay, which skyrocketed in 2020 at some of America's largest low-wage employers. According to new research from the Institute for Policy Studies, Of the 100 S&P 500 firms with the lowest median workers' wages, 51 bent their own rules in 2020 to increase executive pay. And the report on the research noted further that, quote, common manipulations included lowering performance bars to help executives meet bonus targets, awarding special retention bonuses, quote unquote, excluding poor second quarter results from evaluations and replacing performance-based pay with time-based awards. End quote. They further noted that among the 51 companies, CEO compensation averaged $15.3 million, up 29% from 2019. CEO worker pay ratios averaged 830 to 1 in 2020. Median worker pay ran $28,000 on average in 2020, which was 2% lower than in 2019. So CEO pay up 29%. Average worker pay down 2%. They also noted, astonishingly, 16 firms ended 2020 in the red and that this group of profit-losing rule-bending corporations had the highest average CEO pay at $17.5 million. And the Institute for Policy Studies in this report also names names Tyson Food, for instance, is one of them. That's the massive meat processing company. When their executives didn't meet the targets to get cash bonuses, they just gave them stock rewards to make up the difference. And speaking of stocks, the report notes that, quote, John Tyson, the heir and grandson of the company founder, watched his personal wealth increase 72% during the pandemic to $2.6 billion. And the CEO of Tyson Food ended up making about $11 million or 294 times more than the typical worker. Speaking of which, as the report also notes, quote, frontline Tyson employees, meanwhile, suffered more COVID-19 infections and deaths than those at any other meat packer. The CEO of Chipotle, Brian Nickel, made $38 million in 2020. That's 2,898 times as much as the company's median worker pay of $13,127. That $38 million, by the way, was a 136% increase over what he made in 2019. And the Chipotle board helped him out there because they threw out a bunch of poor financial results over the months of the shutdown to make sure that he could increase his bonus payment. 
at Johnson Controls, which makes tens of billions of dollars making HVAC fire and security equipment. The CEO there agreed to trim $150,000 of his base salary, and they've also been bragging that they had not reduced employees' salaries. So, you know, I guess trying to say they're doing the right thing during tough times. Well, here's the real thing. The CEO got a $2 million cash bonus, and Johnson Controls is laying off 6,500 people. At Coca-Cola, the report notes, quote, none of the soft drink makers' top executives met their bonus targets last year, but the Coca-Cola board gave them all bonuses anyway. For CEO James Quincy, that $960,000 bonus, combined with new stock-based awards, drove his total compensation package above $18 million, over 1,600 times as much as the company's typical worker pay. In December of 2020, Coca-Cola announced plans to cut 2,200 jobs, or 17% of its workforce. Coke profits dropped by 13% last year. About 1,200 of the layoffs will hit U.S. workers. End quote. You might as well check out that whole report from IPS. I could easily go on and on here, but I don't really need to. It's clear as day. Corporate bosses, never missing a chance to exploit a crisis to line their own pockets. <laughs> The last two rounds of stimulus checks had their share of critics in Congress and the corporate world and corporate-oriented think tanks. They argued that they weren't really necessary and wouldn't accomplish much. New research into Census Bureau records, however, seems to suggest the opposite and raises important questions about how social welfare is provisioned. The research done by the University of Michigan found that, quote, from December 2020 to April 2021, food insufficiency fell by over 40%. Financial instability fell by 45%, and reported adverse mental health symptoms fell by 20%, end quote. And they noted further that these numbers, quote, fell following implementation of robust federal income transfers and rose in the absence of government action, end quote. Uh, when you extrapolate from the numbers, by the way, they noted that 5.2 million children had escaped food insufficiency since the start of the year. The New York Times, reporting on the research, interviewed a number of people about the impact of the last two stimulus checks in their lives, and they summarized it thusly, quote, Jaleesa Webb resumed an old habit, serving her children three meals a day. Corinne Young paid the water bill and stopped bathing at her neighbor's apartment. And Shanetta Ray cried, thank Jesus, and rushed to spend the money on a medical test to treat her cancer, end quote. The Times analysis also noted about the census data, census data, quote, even among households that had pre-pandemic incomes of fifty dollars to $75,000, more than 11% of those with children sometimes are often lacked food at the start of the year, a figure that has since fallen in half, end quote. And this new data has reopened an old debate over the efficacy of cash benefits since so-called, quote-unquote, welfare reform in the 1990s. America's social safety net programs have been fairly allergic to cash payments people can use to help themselves survive. And in fact, they've become an increasing tangle of stipulations and restrictions designed to make sure the money is, quote-unquote, spent how it's supposed to be. Now, it's dubious how much of a problem this ever was in the first place, as opposed to just the demonization of the poor and their choices. Nevertheless, it has persisted that broad cash payments are not effective. This data shows quite clearly that the checks did what they were supposed to do, substantially reduce but not eliminate material hardship. So clearly, despite the fear-mongering around cash benefits, people did indeed spend the money surviving, as, of course, common sense would dictate. 
The debate will, of course, go on, but it's worth taking note of this research when you hear the tired old arguments about how poor people shouldn't be given help because they won't use it wisely. Iran will go to presidential elections on June 18th of this year, and the race is getting more contentious between the seven candidates, confirming, among other things, that the old American political nostrum, it's the economy, stupid, seems to have some applicability here. Now, most of the criticism in the West of the election is that all the candidates approved by the Guardian Council, which vets the candidates and approves them for the presidential election there, were critics of President Rouhani, so-called conservatives, or quote-unquote hardliners. That's worth noting that this seems to comport with, well, where most of the voters are. Polling from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs done in April found that, quote, nearly two-thirds of Iranians say they would prefer a critic of Rouhani. And further, as Rouhani serves his last months as the Iranian president, a majority, 62%, say they have an unfavorable view of him, end quote. And that same poll noted that Ibrahim Raisi, who is the current leading candidate and Rouhani's main opponent in the 2017 election, had a 75% approval rating, and that former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad had a 57% approval rating. Now, of course, both those candidates are heavily affiliated with both criticism to Rouhani in the particular sense and the political tendency the West calls hardliners, quote-unquote, in the general sense. So the idea that Iran's elections are not in tune with the broader political mood and that there's simply, simply a authoritarian imposition from above just heavily, heavily oversimplifies the situation. And the tenor and the tone of the election has been almost exclusively around the economy. Raisi, the frontrunner, opened his campaign meeting with businessmen and taking a trip to the Tehran Bazaar. And yesterday, he announced plans to build 4 million affordable housing units and has heavily focused in on corruption. And quite a bit of time has been spent by various candidates trying to tie other candidates to economic policies during the Rouhani administration. And similar to Raisi, pretty much all the candidates are making a significant point about being against corruption. Saeed Jalili, for instance, for instance, I should say, who's Iran's former lead nuclear negotiator, has been making a point of how he lives a pretty simple lifestyle, saying how he's driving basically the simplest car you can buy um, in Iran, and others have actually been criticizing him for that, saying that it's false modesty, if you will. But nevertheless, showing you're not corrupt is a big piece of it. I mean, even Abdul Nasser Hemati, that's the candidate most trying to court the so-called reformist, is saying that his administration would be focused pretty much entirely on trying to reform the economy and address issues like corruption, income inequality, and so on. And this is honestly a place for a good reminder here that the quote-unquote conservatives in Iran in the Western parlance, while certainly very socially conservative, tend to be more social democratic in terms of economic policy. While the reformists, while they tend to have a more variegated approach to the religious nature of the state and the strictures therein, also tend to favor, like Rouhani does, by the way, very neoliberal economic policies. Now, Raisi is the favorite, but in the range of available polling, both inside and outside the country, it seems like something close to or just over a majority of voters are undecided. Surprises certainly have happened in Iranian elections. In 1997, uh, Mohammad Khatami won unexpectedly. The real question is, what will the turnout be? Routinely, Iranian presidential elections have a turnout in the 70s, which is significantly higher, by the way, than most U.S. presidential elections. The Chicago Council poll, however, is showing that this election could be as low as 52%. Now, that wouldn't be shocking in a U.S. presidential election. For instance, in the year 2000, the presidential election had a 51% turnout. 
But for Iran, it would be a significant sign of dissatisfaction with all sides in the political arena, people more or less voting with their feet by abstaining. Interestingly enough, most of the candidates have been steering clear of what many are predicting could be a massive drought later this year. It's already a pretty big, big drought, but a big water crisis that has been looming. Foreign policy also been fairly muted. And most candidates, to the extent they're talking about the Iran nuclear deal, don't seem terribly committed to making better relations with the West central to their agenda, although everyone is in principle in favor of negotiations. Ultimately, the biggest thing to watch for, of course, is the turnout, since most of the candidates are reading from a fairly similar script speaking to voters' economic demands, with the Supreme Leader saying that this election must begin the quote-unquote second step of the revolution. It seems that this election will determine whether or not that step will be cleanly made or start out with a bit of a stumble. And that's going to do it for us here today on The Punch-Out. We'll be back with you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern. But don't forget, if you go to patreon.com slash breakthrough news and become a patron of BT News, you'll be able to get access today to the patrons-only edition of The Punch-Out that's out every Wednesday. But we'll be back with you on the normal edition, the regular edition, the people's edition, if you will, of The Punch-Out. No, I'm not going to say that because our patrons, we love you too. We will definitely be back with you tomorrow, 5 p.m. as we always are here on Breakthrough News.